This episode is brought to you in part by June's Journey. Picture it, the glamour of the roaring 20s wrapped in a mystery that only you can solve. Dive into June Parker's captivating quest to uncover scandalous family secrets. With your keen eye for detail, find hidden clues and solve mind-boggling puzzles. It's all about observation, intrigue, and drama. But beware, each clue leads deeper into a thrilling storyline filled with danger and romance. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Your adventure awaits. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 whack. When she seen what she had done, she gave her father 41. Wasn't a lot of time between when she quote-unquote discovers her dad and then the police are called, and there's no blood found on her. They never found blood-soaked dresses. And she would have had to be, if she was the one who was wielding that hatchet on her stepmom and her dad, wouldn't she have had to have blood spatter on her? The eternal question, where did the blood go? I'm Erin Moriarty, 48 Hours, and this is my life of crime. So here I am in Fall River, Massachusetts for part two of my podcast about one of the most sensational crimes of all time. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 whack. For those who may not know, Lizzie Borden was 32 years old when she became the prime suspect in the axe murders of her father, Andrew Borden, and her stepmother, Abby. When she seen what she had done, she gave her father 41. Now, there's a little poetic license here. Andrew actually had 10 or 11 blows to the head, not 41. And Abby had 17 or 18. And remember, this was back in 1892. But the fascination with this case is so enduring that the scene of the crime, where they were killed, is now the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast Museum. And for reasons that are no longer clear to me, I've agreed to sleep here tonight. Leanne Wilbur owns the place. What room are you in? I'm in the room that Abby was killed in. Oh, good. You took my suggestion. Yes. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? Will there be anything I no, see? No, no, no. He, he just... I think he... 
you seemed a little hesitant, so I was like, oh, put her in the murder room. Of course, of course. Put the one who's most scared in the murder room. You will be fine. (laughs) So at this point, I say my goodnights, grab my overnight bag, and head for the hallway. At the very top of the stairs is the room where I'm going to spend the night. Come in with me. I'm coming into the room. Because right next to the bed, right where I'm standing right now, between a dresser and the bed, Abby Borden was found face down, hacked to death. The room itself is actually very nice, although just a little drafty and cold, and I suppose I should have expected that. It's a very old house. The bed is actually extraordinary with this high backboard that almost goes up to the ceiling. And it would be a very charming, very sweet room if not for the two pictures sitting right on the dresser. One, I'm picking it up right now, of Abby Borden face down dead. And this one's even more macabre. There she is. You see her face laying straight down on the carpet with blood around her head. How charming. I get ready for bed. I'm not wearing PJs. I'm actually wearing running clothes, just in case I have to make a quick dash. I don't think I'm going to get a lot of sleep tonight. It's now 1.11, and I wake up suddenly. But it's not ghosts that are waking me up. It's the cold. I've never slept in a place so cold. At 1.30, I hear voices. Men. But it's not inside the house. It's outside on the sidewalk. Inside the house, it's dead quiet. I feel like I'm not sleeping at all, but clearly I am because it's now 3 a.m. And for some reason, I'm a little warmer than I was. The house doesn't seem quite as cold. Maybe that's because, as I heard, that Abby Borden is kind of a friendly ghost, a caring ghost, and maybe she's making sure that I'm not quite as cold in her bedroom. a.m. I wake up hearing the sound of birds. I survived the night. Didn't get a lot of sleep, but I survived the night in the Lizzie Borden Bed Breakfast and Museum. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx Service Guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? 
See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. The next morning, we're treated to scrambled eggs and Johnny Cakes. Johnny Cakes are a lot like pancakes. And that's what people ate in the morning back in 1892. Tim, you're the cook here, right? So you're here. And how long have you been cooking at the... Eight years. Eight years. In the B&B. So we're eating the same way that... Same sort of way. Not exactly because no one wants mutton, but... After breakfast, it's time to return to the story of Lizzie Borden and what really happened back in this house on the morning of August 4th, 1892. Two murders committed more than an hour apart in broad daylight. Now, Lizzie made no secret of her dislike of her stepmother, and she had no real alibi for that time. The assumption was that whoever killed... uh one killed the other. So the they were always looking for one murderer or one murderer and an accomplice. So Lizzie Borden was the suspect in both, primarily because of her known hatred for her stepmother. Author Cara Robertson picks up the story again. She's written a fascinating book called The Trial of Lizzie Borden. The police pretty much began by rounding up the usual suspects that they were looking for what they imagined to be some kind of insane immigrant. Because what was so profoundly upsetting about about the idea of Lizzie Borden uh, committing the murders was that she's someone who ticked all the boxes of respectable femininity. She's someone who was active in her church. Uh, She even taught Sunday school. And so the idea that someone like her, someone who seemed to represent the ideal of an unmarried woman living in, um, in her father's home, the idea that she could have been capable of this was so upsetting. But in fact, what was going on behind closed doors in this house? It wasn't so peaceful, was it? No, it was a, it was a house of, of festering tensions. At a formal inquest, witnesses said that Lizzie had tried to buy poison from a chemist the day before the murders. And although she denied it, that was really incriminating evidence. So she was arrested and jailed. And in fact, Lizzie remained in jail until her trial nearly a year later in the neighboring town of New Bedford. I mean, how big a story was it in 1892? The closest parallel, I think, is to the O.J. Simpson case. You know, it was it was definitely that level of story. It was it was covered uh, nationally and internationally, um, and like that like that case, it seemed to be a case about something more than the guilt or innocence of the individual defendant. Um, that it seemed to speak to something darker at play in the society. And if you consider uh, the hierarchical nature of the society in that era, particularly one that assumed that uh, men and women were biologically profoundly different, then the case threatened a lot of uh, assumptions about what a woman might do. The beauty of Cara's book is that she lifts the story right from the court record and from the actual transcripts from trial. 
And I found it fascinating because I cover trials for 48 hours all the time. I'm reading transcripts all the time. And there are aspects in the Lizzie Borden trial that I think you could see and hear in a courtroom today. How would someone like Lizzie Borden be able to cut up her stepmother, hit her, what, 18, 19 times with some kind of sharp object, um, get rid of those clothing, and then an hour, hour and a half later, whenever it was, when whoever killed her father, how does, how does she hide the blood? Where's the blood? Well, that's, that's basically the defense argument right there, is that, is that uh, there is no way that, that someone could have committed the murders and not have been um, spattered. Uh, we do know that Lizzie Borden burned a dress on the Sunday after the murders, uh, and this is witnessed by uh, her former friend, Alice Russell, uh, who is the first person after the doctor that Lizzie Borden thinks to summon after the murders. Um, she testifies that Lizzie Borden burned this dress, uh, and the idea is that the dress you know, might have had blood stains on it. The defense, particularly uh, Lizzie and her sister Emma, say that the dress is stained with paint and are able to prove that, in fact, it had been stained with paint. It still raises the issue of why Lizzie Borden would have chosen to burn a dress the Sunday after the murders. Doesn't um, look good. All right, so the trial starts. What is the prosecution's theory? The prosecution's um, theory is fairly simple, that, that really only Lizzie Borden has the opportunity to commit the murders and that she alone has the motive. There is a sort of CSI Fall River aspect to this. Although we don't have DNA evidence and it is too early for fingerprints to be used as identification, let alone uh, for investigation, the police come and they uh, take, they count all the blood spots and blood spatter. They pull up pieces of carpet. Uh, they take the bodies, uh, they're autopsied. Um, and, and perhaps the most um, chilling piece of medical uh, drama in the case, the coroner um, removes the heads, renders off the flesh so that they can examine the wounds on the scalp. On both Andrew and Abby? That's right. That's part of how they know uh, how to count all the wounds. And what happens to those skulls? Uh, in perhaps the most dramatic moment in the trial, uh, the prosecutor opens up a bag that contains the skulls, um, and this leads Lizzie Borden to faint. Something that is noted um, both as proof of her essential femininity, uh, that, she, uh, that she just finally had more than she could bear, and is, uh, you know, ruefully noted as if it's a, uh, a kind of theatrical gesture on her part. Did Lizzie know that the skull, her dad's skull and her stepmother's skull had been removed and would be brought into the trial to be used against her? It, it seemed to be a surprise. <laughs> uh, local legend has it that the, that the doctor who performed the autopsy had rendered off the flesh and lobster pots at home. Oh my God. Okay, that would not happen in a courtroom today. But stunts by prosecutors really aren't that unusual, especially when it's a tough case. And believe it or not, trying Lizzie Borden was a very tough case. So the prosecution's theory is that Lizzie did both. Was there a reason why she would kill Abby first? 
significantly the order of the murders provides a good explanation if you believe that money was at the heart of the crime. Did I happen to mention that Andrew Borden was a wealthy man, a very wealthy man? At the time of his death, his estate was worth almost $300,000. And if that doesn't sound like a lot, think about this. That's more than $8 million today. All of Andrew Borden's estate uh, was split between his daughters. Um, And significantly, that would have been good support for the prosecution. Uh, But they're quite reluctant to make that argument that money is not seen as a feminine motive. So the prosecution um, is essentially forced to argue that uh, Lizzie Borden hated her stepmother, and there may have been some money within that, but that it was basically an extreme exaggeration of the sort of dislike that a stepdaughter might have for her stepmother. So how does the defense counter all of this? Well, the defense, first of all, says, look, it's not your job to unravel the mystery. Um, The question's not whether or not um, Lizzie Borden is even the most likely suspect. It's it's whether or not you prove this beyond a reasonable doubt. Describe the closing arguments in this case. The closing arguments are um, perhaps the most dramatic uh, part of an already sensational trial. The uh, defense argues essentially that you know, Lizzie Borden was someone uh, who is exactly how she appears, that she is this proper, uh, respectable, uh, church-going woman um, who uh, lived a quiet life. And then just on one Thursday morning, her life is completely upended uh, by the murders of her stepmother and her father. And then uh, the defense also makes the argument contrary to the medical evidence, uh, that Lizzie Borden simply could not physically have committed the murders. Um, And that was consistent with prevailing ideas about uh, women's capacity, um, but was not consistent with the evidence that was actually presented at the trial. So tell me about inside the jury room. You have 12 men. Yeah, the assumption is that, um, that the jurors will take a while to go through the evidence, but they find that they're unanimous. So, on the first ballot. So what do they do when they first go into the room? What do they do? What do the jurors do? Uh, they take a vote, and they're all, um, they're all unanimous for not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty? Yes. Surprised? I sure was. I grew up thinking that Lizzie Borden was absolutely the killer, so I just assumed that she was convicted of the murders, and she wasn't. But I was also shocked by what Kara told me next. And at that point, uh, the crowd erupts into cheers, and those are joined by cheers uh, of the people outside waiting for news. Cheers because they're glad that she's acquitted? Cheers cheers of joy and also of relief. Uh, you can see that many of the men in the courthouse are crying. Because people really felt she w- was innocent? I can only imagine how tense it was. And so you can imagine that there would be some relief in being able to believe, at least for a moment, that, the, that you know, an innocent person was being released. But also that, you know, as I said, I think there's something larger at stake in this trial, um, and that it's not simply whether or not Lizzie Borden herself 
killed her stepmother and, and more importantly, her father. Um, but whether or not someone like her could have done it, someone who seemed so unremarkable, uh, someone who seemed to be on paper the, the model of unmarried ladyhood, whether a respectable woman could be so um, transformed as to commit brutal crimes like that. Kara, what do you think? Did she do it? I'm, I'm in the same place as many of the people were at the time, which is that as a practical matter, it's quite difficult to believe she could have done it. But at the same time, it seems impossible to me that anyone else could have done it. The jurors, the all-male jury panel back in the 1890s, just couldn't accept the idea that a woman like Lizzie, who was so proper, so well-dressed, could commit such heinous acts that probably wouldn't happen today if it was the same kind of case and a jury today. So the big question is, did she do it or did she not? Who did kill Andrew and Abby Borden with an axe on that summer day in August of 1892? And maybe that's why the story still resonates. A 127-year-old murder mystery. As for Lizzie, she and her sister Emma split their inheritance and bought a house in the fanciest part of Fall River, Massachusetts. But there was no happy ending. They had a falling out, and they never saw each other again after 1905. Lizzie spent the remainder of her life ostracized by the Fall River community. I would have loved to have interviewed her. But the truth is, she never did talk publicly about the murders, and she died of heart disease in 1927. I'm Erin Moriarty, 48 Hours. And that's my life of crime. This podcast series is developed by 48 Hours in partnership with CBS News Radio. Judy Tigart is our executive producer. Nancy Kramer is our executive story editor. Mike Fillet, the series producer editor. This episode was produced by Luis Geraldo, Jamie Hellman, and Tamara Weitzman. Morgan Canty and Emma Steele are our associate producers. Craig Swagler, the vice president and general manager of CBS News Radio. Charles E. Pavlunas is the executive vice president of business development and the CFO of CBS News. A special thanks to our guests, Cara Robertson and the team of the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast. Finally, a shout out to all of you, our fans. We owe it to you. The millions of fans of 48 hours in the U.S. and around the world. Don't forget to join me online. I am at EF Moriarty on Twitter, and we are at 48 Hours on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Tune in to CBS News every Saturday night at 10 p.m. Eastern as we begin, believe it or not, our 33rd season of Crime and Justice original reporting on 48 Hours. It only takes two minutes of sheer horror. 
a new Paramount Plus original docuseries. We were dealing with a serial killer preying on elderly women. A cold-blooded killer hidden in plain sight. He's suffocating people with the pillows. Leaving corpses all over Texas. How did it happen? I was responsible for her. The guilt is immeasurable. They covered it up. Pillowcase Murders, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.